Come on. Go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to finish up chapter 9 today. A uh, little reminder while I turn there in my Bible. Um, uh, near Towards the end of next month, my family will be heading out of town for a while. I'll be taking a sabbatical. Um, and you, uh, this pulpit will be filled by a variety of people from your own ranks. Uh, don't worry, it's not like we're going to call on you last minute and have you preach a sermon. Everyone who's doing it knows that they are going to be preaching. Uh, but do be praying uh, for that, that our church during that process, for my family during uh, my sabbatical. Um, and be sure that you uh, come every Sunday this fall uh, to support all of your guest speakers. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19, uh, we come to a familiar passage, or at least a passage with a familiar verse in it. Um, and so we, it deserves our extra attention because the things that we're familiar with, we have the tendency to skip over because we think we already know that. So pay attention, pay close attention, and uh, let's be in, have our hearts be in a position of receptivity for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Verse 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. Let's pray once more. Jesus, we pray that you would pour out by your Holy Spirit into our hearts this, um, this heart for evangelism, uh, this heart for all men, and um, this, this love of God that was surely in Paul's heart that, that prompted him to sacrifice all things for all people, um, to become a servant to all men so that some might be saved. We thank you for saving us. We thank you, God, for the people in our lives that have uh, made sacrifices for our salvation. We thank you that today we get to see the heart of Christ at work. Uh, we pray that we would see it not only in this sermon, in, in this text, but in the lives of your Christians here in our church. Pour out the love of God into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as you guys know, last week we took a break from Corinthians uh, and took a look at Psalm 139. But for the several weeks before that, I've basically been preaching the same sermon, uh, just in different passages. From chapter 8, really all the way through chapter 11, it's all been about personal freedoms, uh, rights, and something better. Uh, it's been about love. Paul's addressed many specific uh, challenges that the Corinthians were facing, and the answer seems to be the same every time, walk in love towards those around you. In chapter 11 and 12, which we haven't got to yet, but we will, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and how those operate within a local church. And then Paul will explain all of those things, but then he will show you a better way or a more excellent way, and that is love, and he gives a whole chapter to it. 
So in this passage, uh, verses 19 through 23, we see that love, again, being described as that thing that drives Paul. We see the thing that is, is the main force behind Paul's decisions as an apostle, as an evangelist, as a missionary. We see why he does what he does. And we're not surprised at all to find out that the thing that makes Paul do what he does is, is love. It's love every time. If I'm starting to sound like a broken record here, saying the same thing each week, I don't mind. Uh, the more I can sound like the apostles, the better, I think. But I do want to point out there is a variation in this message that may sound like it's been on repeat. When Paul was talking about food sacrifice to idols, that was a weird chapter, right? Uh, and how to treat other people with different convictions than we have. He showed that love is better than law, that caring for others is better than clinging to your own rights. And that was dealing with people within your church. In that passage, Paul was talking about his love for the church. And he was encouraging, among the Corinthians, love for their fellow Corinthian believers. But in this passage, Paul is talking about his love for those outside. He was talking about walking in love towards a weaker brother. When you love a brother like you should, you are willing to make sacrifices for him. But the love of Christ does not extend only to those who are already his brothers. The love of Christ that is in Paul's heart is for the church, but it is not only for the church. The love of Christ extends to the lost. This is probably one of the strangest, most counterintuitive parts of the gospel, and it is absolutely central to Christian theology. It's Jesus saying, love your enemies. And we're like, no, no. No, I'm not gonna. I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. But Jesus says, love your enemies. He starts right, it's right in Matthew. It's in the beginning of the New Testament, okay? And over and over in parables like the story of the Good Samaritan and in, in practice with his constant care and affection for those who are outcasts from his own Jewish society, Jesus shows us that the love of God is not meant to exist only within a well-insulated community. Just as Paul modeled Christ-like care for the church, now we see that he also models Christ-like love for those outside the church. The theme here is the same. It's still love. We're talking about love a whole lot. The application is still that of laying aside your own rights and privileges and preferences and freedoms so that others can fully enjoy the riches of the gospel. The only difference is that now Paul shifts his focus from within the church out to the world full of lost souls. In verse 19, look at this again. He says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. Paul is free. That's what he's been saying for a few chapters, actually. Some examples, he, he said, I'm free to marry, if that were the best thing. Apostles can get married. We don't have to be single. He says, I'm free to eat what I want. Uh, when he, he, he can eat things that are offered to him from Gentiles. He can eat with Jews. He can eat with Gentiles. doesn't matter. Uh, when he says he is free from all men, he's saying that he is not bound by the opinions of other people. Previously in this chapter, right here in chapter 9, he was talking about how he did not take a paycheck from the Corinthians when he served there uh, for a year and a half as their pastor. He could have demanded it. He had a right as an apostle to be paid for his work. And it would not have been unheard of or unusual for him to receive wages because teachers would get paid all the time in that culture but that's actually why he didn't want to take a check he didn't want them to think that he was like all those preachers for hire that were just in it for the money 
and they didn't care about the message or the people. He needed them to know that he cared about the gospel and for their souls. But one extra benefit of Paul's preach for free strategy is that he could say, I am free from all men. He could mean that. If Paul had taken a paycheck from the wealthiest donors in Corinth, there would have been Corinthians who could have maybe assumed that Paul worked for them and that they should have a say in what Paul preaches. And who knows, Paul was a human. He was a man. He had weaknesses like the rest of us. Maybe this would have, been, would have tempted him. Perhaps he could have been ensnared in this trap and the gospel could have been watered down because he believed the deceitfulness of riches. It's possible. But because he supported himself, he didn't receive a check, he could say, I am free from all men. Remember, remember when Paul wrote in chapter 4, he says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human. And he was able to say, I don't really care what you think about me. Really, that's pretty much what Paul writes in chapter 4. And we all kind of like that part about Paul, and wish that we were so bold that we could, we could tell off a bunch of people and tell them we don't care what they think and, and you're going to want to hold those desires in check okay? and wait till the end of the sermon before you see if that works. The spiritual maturity that we see in Paul is not simply a disregard of other people. That's not what spiritual maturity looks like. It is a freedom from the oppressive and manipulative people-pleasing tendencies that we can develop. And it is a freedom from what the scripture calls the fear of man, which is a snare. But it is not an excuse to be unloving. That's not what Christian, Christian freedom is. It's not a freedom to be an arrogant jerk. Paul knows that pride, selfishness, arrogance, all of these things are just other types of sin. And sin is a snare that enslaves. If you're a slave of sin, you're not really free. When Paul says, I am free from all men, he is saying, my master outranks you. I work for a king. You're not him. I take orders from someone higher than you. Your opinions are not what drive me. But while the opinions of others didn't drive Paul, his opinions of them, and really his opinions and beliefs about God, his theology, drove him to serve these people, whether or not their opinions were especially valuable or even accurate. He says, for though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. Paul was free, and he used his freedom to become a servant. Jesus also, being the epitome of freedom, as God himself, God is free, he chose to take on the form of a bondservant. Why? For the same reason Paul wanted to serve others, that I might win the more. This is how we see Paul change the whole conversation about liberty and freedom. Remember, 1 Corinthians was written in response to a letter from the church in Corinth. And it seems that a lot of their letter was made up of questions like, what can I do? How much am I allowed to have? How much can I take? How far can I go? And Paul talks about freedom in a completely different way. He says, it's not about how much I'm allowed to do. I'm allowed to do anything. The question is, how much can I possibly give up for the cause of the gospel and the God who saved me? Paul was more free than any of them and more of a servant than any of them. Now, Paul is going to list all the ways in which he became a servant during different phases of his ministry. Each time, his freedom is expressed in this laying down of rights for the sake of the gospel. Verse 20, he says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, 
that I might win those who are under the law. Paul says he became as a Jew, which is interesting because he is a Jew. So he calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, right, in Philippians 3. But Paul also knows that in the kingdom of God, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Being a Jew was no longer Paul's primary identity. It was not the most important thing about him. It was no longer the central part of uh, the central most important thing about him. Paul is a Jew, but what's more, he's a Christian who believes that Christ has fulfilled and overcome all Jewish law. So it was easy for Paul to throw off a lot of, it would be easy, excuse me, for Paul to throw off a lot of the religious trappings that he held onto before his conversion, the extra stuff of his past Phariseeism, right? A lot of times if someone is dramatically saved from a certain culture after their conversion, they want nothing to do with that former way of life, even the morally neutral parts. This was actually one of the problems that the Corinthians were having. They existed in Corinth. It was a hyper-sexualized culture, and some of them were rejecting all kinds of sexuality, saying celibacy is the only way. You know, they were rejecting all sexuality, even the kinds that God had blessed, because they'd come out of this perverted culture. They had lived in a culture where feasting was always in connection with idol worship. And so once they became Christian, some of them wanted nothing to do with the meat that had been part of those festivities. I've met people who get saved and they don't want anything to do with entire genres of music, a kind of music, a sound, because to them it can only sound like their past life before they were saved. You know, it reminds them of their past when they were living in a way that wasn't honoring to God. Now, Paul was a Pharisee when he was saved. Those aren't the good guys in the New Testament. We know how strict the Pharisees could be. I don't think any of us would blame Paul for wanting to separate himself from as much of that past way of life as possible. But a lot of that culture uh, that really described him before he was saved he continued in it for the sake of his fellow Jews so that he could bring some of them to Christ. We see this in Acts chapter 21. We read that a rumor went around in Jerusalem that Paul was somehow anti-Jew. Again, kind of funny because he was, he was a Jew. But they said, nope, he's racist, that guy. He is anti-Jew. And some people tell Paul in Acts 21, verse 21, that people had been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. So these are Christians telling Paul this. There's a rumor about you that you're telling everyone, forsake Moses, get rid of all Moses, just cut out Genesis through Deuteronomy, out of your Bibles, okay, don't need that. Also, don't raise your children as Jews. Don't do any of the holidays. You're, you're not a Jew anymore. Was this true? Not really, no. This was not what Paul was teaching. And even if it was, Paul could have made a big theological argument about it. Paul could have, he could have, uh, you know, stood up on a, on a soapbox and said how circumcision isn't important anymore. It really doesn't matter anymore. You're making a big deal out of nothing. Or he could have just said, this is false. I don't teach this. And, you know, made an announcement and bought an ad in the papers or something to clear his name. Paul would certainly be free to argue against a false accusation. But that's not what he does. And that's not how freedom works in Paul's mind. Here's what happens instead. The people who tell Paul about this rumor, they're Christians. They care about Paul's reputation. They have an idea about what Paul should do about it. They, they know four guys, four Jewish men, who had taken a Nazarite vow. 
and were going to go to the temple to finish up their vow. And there was a lot involved in that. There were expensive sacrifices, lots of rites and rituals. So they say, Paul, in order for these Jews to feel better about you, why don't you take these four guys to the temple, go through all the purification rites with them, and here's the good part, why don't you pay for all the expenses that they have incurred from your own pocket? Because I know some of you are wondering, the expenses for all four would be 12 animal sacrifices plus grain offerings. Not cheap. This is not cheap at all. So say, Paul, there's a rumor about you. Why don't you go spend thousands of dollars of your own money to just show that, that you're not that bad after all? And Paul, in order that he might win some of the Jews, instead of clinging to his rights, says, yes, okay, I'll do that. To the Jews, he became a Jew. Not because he was afraid of them, not because he was nervous about bad press. It was so that he might win Jews. To those who were under the law, he became as one under the law so that he could win the souls of those who were under the law. This was the rule for Paul's ministry. He lived like this and led his disciples in this same kind of selfless sacrifice. Remember Timothy? Yeah, he became as a Jew to win the Jews too. And I'd say he went further than Paul. He was circumcised. Did he have to be? No, emphatically no. He was free from all men, but he became a servant of all. And these kinds of extreme missionary practices go in both directions. To the Jew, Paul became as a Jew. To the Gentile, he became as a Gentile. Verse 21, it says, to those who are without law, as without law, not being without law towards God, but under law towards Christ, that I might win those who are without law. Now, there's some more subtlety here that Paul uses, and he, he has this parenthetical statement so he's not misunderstood. He becomes as those without law, meaning those who are not Jews, those who are not under the Mosaic law. He doesn't want you to think that he became completely lawless as one who actually lives without any restraint whatsoever. He does not burn buildings so that he can reach some anarchists for, with Christ. You know That's not his, his point here. He's still living according to the law of Christ, or as he puts it, he is under law towards Christ. Paul never stops being a bondservant of Jesus. But he does become like the Gentiles, those not under the law, in order to see those Gentiles saved. We see Paul this, do this too throughout Acts. My favorite example would be Acts 17, where Paul goes to Mars Hill in Athens and speaks with the philosophers there. And he, he uses their own method of communication. He quotes pagan poetry. A lot of the more legalistic Jews would have been like, oh, that's that's bad stuff. That's like Zeus stuff, worship. Oh, Paul, he doesn't look like he's religious at all, but he's like, I'm going to do it. He becomes Greek. He speaks Greek to the Greeks, referring to Greek poets and Greek mythology, and he reasons with the Greeks, citing Greek sources, to win some Greeks, <laughs> to win some. He, he goes to every extent possible to win some. Many look, like, many look at the life of Paul, and they see what appear to be these inconsistencies, you know, in one place, he's having Timothy circumcised. In another place, he's cursing those people who say you need to be circumcised. On the one hand, he's saying, eat the food, eat with the Gentiles. Don't ask where they bought it. In another place, he says, if one meal causes a brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. Who are you, Paul? It's easy to assume that Paul is inconsistent, but that's the wrong word for it. What you are seeing in the life of Paul is a, a strict consistency to a higher value. Paul consistently does whatever it takes to get the gospel to as many people as possible. 
He consistently reevaluates his own actions and measures them not against the standard of the culture necessarily, though it can look like that sometimes, but he measures his own actions against the culture's ability to receive the gospel. We've seen Paul's consistency, his unwavering steadiness right here in the book of 1 Corinthians. He consistently elevates Christ. He consistently promotes love. And he consistently practices what he preaches about Christ and him crucified. He is consistently sacrificial. The form of this sacrifice looks differently depending on who he is trying to reach, but the heart is the same every time. In verse 22, he says, To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. There's the consistency. I'm doing whatever I do. No matter what I do, I do it for the cause of the gospel so that I may save some. He says, to the weak I became as weak. Who are the weak? Chapter 8 talked about them. In chapter 8, he was talking about people with a weak conscience. The ones who were a bit superstitious, actually, about the food they ate. These were the people who were convinced that to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols was to have fellowship with demons and was to to worship idols. They couldn't eat that without worshiping. Paul explains in the last, there's no other God but one. In verse 6, he said, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. There's, There's one God. You're not actually, the idol is just an idol. The food is just food. That's what Paul believes, and he believes it 100%. But there were people in the church and outside the church who couldn't imagine that meat sacrificed to idols did not have a spiritual quality to it. There were people who would be hindered from accepting the gospel if they saw Paul eat meat sacrificed to idols. So Paul becomes like one of them, one of the weak, and adopts the cultural forms necessary, not because he didn't want their feelings hurt. That wasn't the end game. Not because he was embarrassed and didn't want the bad press or... It wasn't because he was just worried about offending or breaking cultural norms. He does everything he does in order to win souls. That's the bottom line. There's this famous line right here. You know it, I'm sure, where he says, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. This is a well-known verse, or really the first half of this verse is well-known verse. Uh, Has anyone heard the verse cited like this? Paul became all things to all men, dot, 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 continue on. And they just kind of trail off and don't finish the passage because that's the only part we remember. He became all things to all men. This verse has been used many times for the opposite purpose of what Paul had in mind. You know, Christian A wears a certain kind of clothing. Christian B disapproves. Christian A says, well, lots of people look like this and they need Jesus, so I am going to look like this so that they can know Jesus. Really? Really? Like, who have you led to the Lord because your t-shirt? If you have, that's great. I don't want to belittle that. but And I want to know. I really do. Really do. But... Uh, what is all too common is that the motive behind, you know, the, the one quoting the first half of this verse is actually, I want to do this. People do this. Paul became all things. So I get to do this. Do you see how it becomes a claiming of your rights rather than the exact opposite of that? The thing that Paul actually says, which is this is all about laying down your rights. You know, you can use Paul's argument for self-sacrificing as a way to feel okay just doing whatever you want. That's the opposite of what Paul is preaching. Listen, if you believe you need to change your habits and your convictions and your appearance and your diet and your citizenship in order to reach someone for Christ, to reach some for Christ, okay, it's worth it. 
It's worth it to do that. But remember, Paul became all things for all people, and I guarantee there are people that you can share the gospel with right now that look just like you. And then if you see someone else who needs the gospel and doesn't look like you, sound like you, like the things you like, have the same convictions, guess what? You can probably share the gospel with them too. You might need to reevaluate many areas in your own life to see if there's anything in you, anything in your way of life, your practice, that would make the gospel less appealing to the person you're reaching. Now, international missions, cross-cultural evangelism will often require you to make changes so that you do not offend. But evangelizing your neighbors requires the same kind of humility that any of those more typical examples of missionary work require. So how do we, how do, we do this? How do we become all things to all men? I can't tell you in every circumstance because all is a big word, and that's a drawer that I just can't open right now. It's all, all things, all men. But I can tell you how we can find out how we need to change in order that some may be one. You can only know how to follow Paul to this point when you also have Paul's heart for the lost. When you try to figure out how to be all things for all people without having the burning, beating heart for the salvation of souls, you'll only be a cultural chameleon, and there is no benefit to that whatsoever. If you want to find out how do I do this, the real question you need to be asking consistently, constantly, is how do I love the people around me best? How do I love the people around me? How do I love these real people in a way that makes the gospel beautiful and appealing? Am I expecting them to overcome cultural differences in order to come to me? Or am I willing to make those changes and those sacrifices in the way that I speak and dress and behave in order for there to be no barriers so that I can get the gospel to them through the quickest route possible? How do I love these people around me in a way that makes the gospel beautiful and appealing? How can I behave around these people so that the gospel is not hindered? How do I... What do I need to change? Do I need to change my clothes? Probably not, but maybe. Do I need to change my heart? Most likely. Yeah, probably so. I remember a couple weeks ago when I was talking about ministry and how we, we wonder, where am I called? Where do I serve? Or how do I serve? What ministry should I work in? And I suggested that these are most likely the wrong questions. The right question is, who do I serve? And who do I love? And I think that's what drove Paul. And once he realized the answer to that, he's like, well, I'm in Gentile territory. The answer of who do I love is that guy right there. Then he became as that man. So there would be as few barriers as possible, as, as, as little obstacle obstacles as possible for him to bring the gospel to that person. The type of ministry, the style of ministry, the behavior that Paul dis displayed in every season of his ministry, it, it wasn't for show. It wasn't for trappings or just the the type of ministry that he wanted. It was for people. He made changes in order for people to be reached. Paul had met Jews who couldn't get over the rumors of his pro-Gentile ways. So Paul says, I'll sit with you. I'll be with you. I'll look like you so that I can show you that Jesus loves you. That has to be the motivation. Or any sort of cultural changes we make are just, just for show. It's just a play. If you can take this saying of Paul's as your own and say, I have become all things for all people, and you have any sort of pride or arrogance or a sense of being self-satisfied because you get to do what you want, and those critical people don't know what they're talking about, you have completely misunderstood Paul. 
when Paul says, I have become all things, he might as well have said, I have sacrificed all things. I have sacrificed the non-essential things that I believe in for the sake of getting the essential things that I believe in across to as many people as possible. I have sacrificed all things that I might win some. This is not a verse that says you get to do whatever you want as long as it's for a higher purpose. This verse does not say you get to become all things and do all, all you want as long as your heart's in the right place. This is a verse that says nothing you have is yours, including you. Everything about you is something you need to be willing to adjust so that someone else can see Jesus better. The word adjust might be too soft. Everything about you is something you need to be willing to sacrifice on the altar of the cross so that someone else can see Jesus better. There cannot be even a hint of arrogance in this teaching. And on the other side of things, there cannot be even a hint of the fear of man in the changes that we make. Now, this is hard. We need the Holy Spirit here to help us. Because on the one hand, you have the risk of being worldly and then pretending that you're worldly for the sake of evangelism, when in reality, you're just selfish. And honestly, you're not a very good evangelist. Okay, That's, that's a conversation you can have in your own head and your own time. There's the risk this, uh, of taking what Paul meant to be a call of sacrifice and turning it inside out so that you can tell people why you don't have to sacrifice because I'm becoming all things to all people. But on the other side is this idea of yielding or submitting to a standard that others have placed, not in order for them to be reached with the life-saving power of the gospel, but so that they don't think you're weird. Sorry, they already think you're weird. There's nothing you can do. There's just no help. Do you see the risk here? Do you see these two extremes where we need to find the, the, the balance? In? Can you see how you could fall off either side of this narrow path? Now, you, do you think Paul became as a Jew to the Jews because he didn't want them to have a bad thought about him? I mean, guys, they wanted to kill him already. Like, that, that was already a given that they wanted to kill him. Do you think Paul changed his clothes and his manner of speech and his diet just because he was afraid of standing out? Uh, no. No, this wasn't why he became all things to all people. Just like the idea of becoming all things to all people is not one of becoming culturally sensitive for the sake of the culture, neither is becoming all things to all people just a means of camouflage. The point is not for you to blend in. The decisions you make about how you interact with the world around you and how you are to respond to any number of cultural environments must be based on how well the gospel, how well will the gospel be preached, received, and responded to. Now, if you back up and you remember Paul talking about loving your brothers within the church, the same kind of thing. When you are with your family, when you are with the church, this is a good thought to have running in your head. Is there anything about me that would prevent me from loving the people around me that I go to church with? Am I putting up obstacles that they have to overcome, or am I willing to take down obstacles so I can love every single person with the love of Christ, even if they're wrong? especially if they're wrong. You bear with the scruples of the weak. We're never told to bear with the scruples of the strong. The question never ever begins or ends with what will they think of me. That's a necessary question, but only because the first question is how can I love people the best? How can I get the gospel to these people that need it the most? And then the follow-up question, after that is central, after that's first, how do I get the gospel to these people? Then there's the follow-up question is, is there anything about me in the way I behave or the way I speak or the way I eat 
or where I live or how I live that could possibly prevent them from hearing the one and only message that could save their eternal souls forever? Am I stopping them from hearing that because of my pride and my unwillingness to yield on secondary and tertiary issues that I think are my, my pet little practices? Paul says in verse 23, now this I do for the gospel's sake. It's not for Paul's sake. It's not for his reputation's sake. It's not for the opinions of others. It's not so he doesn't offend and step on any toes. He says, this I do for the gospel's sake, which the gospel, I'll remind you, he's already called an offense in Corinthians, the offense of the cross. This I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you. The ESV translates it a little different, a little better in my opinion. It says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. It's all for the sake of the gospel. There are times when we see that Paul was definitely willing to offend people, but he was willing to offend only for the cause of the gospel. And here we see that Paul was willing to sacrifice. Paul was willing to sacrifice his own life, every part of it. But he was not willing, he was not sacrificing his life for anything less than the gospel and all the rewards that come with it. For Paul, it's always, always about the gospel. It's only about the gospel. All of these sacrifices he makes are for the gospel. But the gospel, as Paul sees it, is not something to be not something for isolated individuals. It is for all the saved. It is for all of us. Which he says, I do this so that I can become a partaker. I share in the blessings with you, as it's translated in New King James, or with them, that being those who are saved out of Jew or Gentile or whatever culture. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about a gospel that is realized and understood among real people in a real church in real time and space. We know the gospel is a message, that's true, but if we reduce it to a message that isn't preached and obeyed and lived out, then it's a dead message. Um, It is definitely a message. It's nothing if it's not a message of God's saving power. God wants to save us, is able to save us, has done all that is necessary for our salvation. That's a message. The means of this salvation is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's what Paul preaches in season and out. This is what Paul writes about. This message is what Paul is known for. But we can never, ever think that Paul would have been content to live as a hermit by himself alone with some good books, just reveling in the message of the gospel by himself, reading about it for himself, writing about it in his journal. We see that even while Paul was alone, being arrested and imprisoned, he still wrote letters that show a priority on relationship. The gospel that Paul loved is not a gospel that should be enjoyed in pure isolation. Part of the joy of our salvation is the promise that he will bring many sons to glory. We are saved into a family. We are saved as a family, as the people of God, not as a series of isolated persons of God. What you do for the gospel's sake, you do for gospel people. And of course, this is the principle of New Testament Christianity. When you prioritize the gospel, you prioritize people. Paul's message is unhindered. He never compromises on the message. It's always about Christ and him crucified every time. It's the same message every time. He doesn't shift that. He doesn't mold that to make it more suitable to different cultures. It's the same gospel for the Jew as for the Gentile. But the way he behaves and lives, spends his money, spends his time, the way he speaks, 
that changes so that he can get the one unchanging message of the gospel to as many people as possible. He prioritizes Christ and the gospel. And when you prioritize Christ and the gospel, that will be revealed in how you treat other people. And it'll be, you'll treat them like you're the servant. Christ first, we have our priorities. But that first and greatest commandment is followed very closely by the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is why Jesus says, as you did it for the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. Serving others is a means of being the body of Christ. Living for the sake of the gospel is to enjoy the gospel with that body as one member of many. This is how we examine our behaviors, how we live towards other people. Because the gospel that is shaping you, the gospel that has saved you, is shaping you into living stones, right? And somewhere in that temple of God is someone next to you, and you guys are grating like that. And, and there's sacrifices that must be made so that you fit in this church well, so the gospel is unhindered. Paul is willing to cut off so much of his life. He was willing to sacrifice every preference, every uh, good idea that might be his apart from the Holy Spirit so that the church could be well, so that the lost could be reached. And he knew that when he sacrificed for one person, maybe that weaker brother that couldn't eat with everybody else, he knew that when he sacrificed for one person, he was really just worshiping Jesus. If Paul went without meat because it would offend someone, this was not just Paul deferring to another person. It was Paul worshiping Jesus. When you examine your life and see what it is you can do, perhaps what it is that must be changed in order for the gospel to be less hindered, it's something you need to change. And you're not doing it to try to fit in or to stand out. You're not doing this for you at all. You're, you're just wanting to worship Jesus. Let all we do be done for Jesus and in love for his people and in an effort to reach the lost. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you, the Son of God, God of very God, though you were rich, you became poor for our sakes that we might share in the riches of Christ. You, the only begotten Son of God, laid aside all the trappings of divinity that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in us this same willingness of sacrifice, that we would uh, once more come to the altar and present our bodies as living sacrifices. This is an act of worship. Bless our church with the truths of the gospel as we saw them played out today in this chapter. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Stand, please. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ladies and gentlemen, you are sent to potluck. Enjoy a meal. This one's on me. Go ahead.